How is everybody this morning? There we are. How are we doing this morning? Yes. Summer's off to a good start. I'm loving summer. Kids are out of school, so they're already back in Sunday school. I always love summer because that means the church gets popular because uh, Sunday school is a couple hours that your kids are busy and getting rid of energy. We're happy to provide that ministry for you. Um, so we, we are, I'm, I'm Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here. In case this is your first Sunday here, we're glad to have you here. Um, We are finishing up a sermon series called Graduation Speeches, where we've been looking at some of the uh, final words offered by important people from the Bible. So uh, week one in Thrive, we talked about uh, God's final words to Adam and Eve as they left the Garden of Eden. And then we talked about J- uh, J- uh, Joshua's final words. And then we talked about Jesus' final words as he ascended into heaven. This week we're going to talk about Paul's final words in the book of Acts to the leaders in the church in Ephesus. Uh, not a scripture that we bust out a lot on Sunday mornings, but we should because it's a really, really good one. And we're going to jump straight into it um, because it's, it's, a, it's a rich scripture, but we've got to know some stuff as we're jumping in. So um, I'm not going to assume that you've ever read the book of Acts because some of you probably have not. And that's okay. The book of Acts comes uh, immediately after the gospel of John in our Bibles, which is a little confusing because it's actually a continuation of the gospel of Luke. Uh, think of it as the gospel of Luke part two, which is kind of cool. They had a sequel. Sequels were even popular back then, right? Hollywood's got nothing on the Bible. They're like, oh, <laughs> You like that gospel? Boom! Gospel part two. Here we go. Um, And this one, it it sort of parallels the gospel in a way, except the character of Jesus this time is is in a way replaced by the character of Paul, and where Jesus was leading disciples on this journey until he finally faced persecution and torture and death, Paul is leading early church leaders on this journey until he finally faces persecution, torture, and death, right? So these are very similar. They're supposed to be seen in similar veins. And, and, And if you don't know who Paul is, he was a, a Jew who lived in the time of Jesus, and after Jesus was crucified and risen, um, he was a, a persecutor of early Christians, um, and, and he killed early Christians until one day he encountered God. He encountered the presence of God on this road, and he had this amazing sort of moment where he had clarity about who Jesus was, and he found himself now called to follow Christ as a faithful Jew. Now, I say this is important because um, Paul and a lot of the early Christians didn't really think they were starting a new religion, right? They thought they were creating this new movement, this new expression within the Jewish tradition. Now, that's going to come up later on in the sermon, so remember that. But Paul died himself believing to be a very good Jew, the best kind of Jew, the kind of Jew that believes in Jesus. That's what he died thinking. And of course, afterwards, we know that Christianity and Judaism have a split, so Paul is leading all these church leaders. He's a celebrated leader. He's, he, he's constantly going around to these church plants, if you will, in towns around the Mediterranean and major cities in Turkey and Greece and what is now Italy and all these places. Um, until finally he realizes that his ministry is, is pointing him towards Jerusalem just like Jesus' did. And so he, he, he's on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, uh, which in the Jewish tradition was this holiday that celebrated when we received the Ten Commandments. And so it was a common, every year they celebrated Pentecost. Now today is actually Pentecost in the Christian church. We're celebrating Pentecost today. We celebrate it differently though, because Pentecost 
And the book of Acts is in chapter two when the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of God descends and, and, and comes into the early church and, and gives everyone gathered together all these incredible gifts. All of a sudden they can understand each other's languages and they can prophesy and they can perform miracles. And so we celebrate this moment when the Holy Spirit came into our lives in the early church and everything kind of started with the, with the early church. We call that Pentecost today. But Paul's celebrating the old version of Pentecost, he's, because remember, he's a good Jew. He's going to go to Jerusalem and celebrate this day when the law was given to us. And, he, and so on his way to Jerusalem, he's stopping in this town called Miletus. If you don't follow me for all this, it's okay, but for those of you interested, this is really good stuff. So he's stopping in this town called Miletus, and he's sending word that he wants the pastors of the church in Ephesus to come meet him because he loves this church, and it's an important church. It's this big, big city with a lot of diversity and lots of different trade routes going through it, so it's like a really important church plant for him. And he says, I want you guys to come to Miletus, and I've got one final thing I want to say to you. Now, all that is to know that this is the final thing that Paul's going to say to the leaders at the church in Ephesus. This is actually the, the last time he addresses his church leaders before he faces persecution in Jerusalem, which then takes him up to Rome where he suffers and is martyred for his faith. So this is kind of like the last big thing before everything begins to, uh, to play out in his life. Um, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, uh, one other thing we need to keep in mind when I talked about Pentecost in the Christian church, I mentioned it's this day we celebrate the Spirit of God sort of enlivening the early church, breathing new life into us, setting our souls on fire. Um, the Holy Spirit is like a major character in the book of Acts. It's kind of a, a character in and of itself. And Paul is going to talk about the Holy Spirit in his speech. In, in fact, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit a lot today because there's one thing I think that the mainline Christian church, when I say mainline, I mean Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, even some Baptist denominations, one thing I think that we can be really bad about is talking about the Holy Spirit. Like, we like God. God's big and cool and loving and kind. And we like the idea of this, like, master of the universe. And like we like that. And then we like Jesus a lot because Jesus shows us how to live. And Jesus is a nice guy. And he was humble. And he died for us. And so we like that. And then there's this Holy Spirit, or is it Holy Ghost? And, like, it's like this thing just kind of floats into your body. And then, like, it makes you do stuff you don't want to do. And, like, sometimes it makes people, like, talk in weird languages and, like, wriggle on the ground. And I don't know if I like that. So I don't know. Well, we're just going to not talk about this whole thing. But God and Jesus, we like those. We're going to talk about God and Jesus a lot. Now, that's a problem because we're leaving out one-third of the Trinity. If we're talking about the Father and the Son but not the Holy Spirit, we're missing a big part of the picture. And, in fact, we're missing a lot of our own heritage and tradition as a United Methodist Church. We'll come back to that later on this morning, too. So I think it's important for us to talk about the Holy Spirit because I think that mainline churches, even mainline churches in North Dallas could use a little bit of Holy Spirit movement in us, right? We get a little comfortable in our nice chairs and our nice buildings and the air conditioning and maybe the Holy Spirit needs to come and shake us up just a little bit. You ought to be sh shook up a little bit? Anybody? Go ahead and stretch. Be goofy. We're going to be goofy this morning. Stretch out a little bit. You guys are so lame. <sighs> I want, I'm watching you. Wriggle. Do a little wriggle. There we go. There we go. I can see where my teachers are. The teachers are totally bought in. They're like, yeah, duh, we're getting this. I'm looking at my accountants and my CEOs. Y'all need to wriggle up a little bit. Okay. And my lawyers. Okay. We're going to dig into scripture now. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 18. This is when Paul begins addressing the leaders at the church in Ephesus. In Miletus, on the way to Jerusalem. Yeah, it's fun. Okay. 
You yourselves know how I lived among you the entire time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plot of the Jews. I did not shrink from doing anything helpful, proclaiming the message to you and teaching you publicly and from house to house as I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus. Here's the important part. And now, as a captive to the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the, whole, from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. We're going to stop there for right now. Here's the first truth that I know about the Holy Spirit. I know it from these scriptures. I know it from my own life. I know it when I look back at the history of the church. Here's the truth that I know. When, I, when you'd rather stay, the Spirit may call you to go. And when you'd rather go, the Spirit may call you to stay. Let me say that again. When you'd rather go, when you'd rather stay, the Spirit may call you to go. When you'd rather go, the Spirit may call you to stay. I know that from this scripture because you know where, if I'm Paul, you know where I want to be? I want to be with my fan club. I want to be with my fan club. The leaders of the church in Ephesus love Paul. They love Paul. They adore Paul. In, in a, kind of an unhealthy way, they might even worship Paul a little bit, which is why he talks so much in pointing them back to Christ. Right? If I'm Paul, I want to keep visiting all these church plants that I feel like I'm in charge of that, that need me and celebrate me and want my leadership. I'm going to keep torn around them until one day I finally keel over and I have a beautiful memorial service. You know what I might not want to do is go to Jerusalem where they're going to persecute me and bring me up on trial and tell me that I'm a heretic and that I don't really love God. And then, you know what I really don't want to do is I don't want to get in a boat and get shipwrecked. And then you know what I really don't want to do is I don't want to end up in Rome, ended up in jail, where I can't even talk to my church leaders face to face, but I gotta write these little letters to them, which become scriptures in our Bibles. And then I really don't want to be martyred and killed for my faith with no memorial service and no flowers and no parade. I don't want that. See, Paul understood what I've come to understand, not just from these scriptures, but from my own life, that when I'd rather stay, so many times the Spirit's going to call me to go. And when I'd rather go, so many times the Spirit's going to call me to stay. And it's hard because it goes against the grain of what we wanted our most selfish. But I think it's important that we get in touch with what I'm going to call our divine gut. I got a gut. This is not my divine gut. This is my dad gut. All right? Uh, this is a product of, of too many queso and, and Dr. Pepper evenings and barbecue, um, which, by the way, you can buy your tickets for the barbecue dinner that's coming up in about a month out in the hallway. Um, get a dad gut of your own. So what I'm talking about is the divine gut. You can call it a conscience. You can call it a, that, that whisper, that voice of truth that's in your head. All of us have this. We all know when something's right. There's those parts of us that we know, we know things more than we even know ourselves or we know that the sky is blue or the grass is green. There's that part of us that just knows stuff. What am I talking about? Okay. Um, this past weekend, we went to Conroe, Texas. Uh, it's about at 30, 45 minutes north of Houston. I've got a cousin down there, and she and her husband just had a sweet little baby named Evelyn. And Andy got to meet Evelyn and hold her and hang out with her older cousin, Rachel. And it was awesome. Wonderful trip. We were heading down. 
And I've been to Houston a dozen times. I know how to go to Houston. You get on 45 and you go. And you don't stop till you get to Houston, right? So, um, of course, I I know this. I know that when you go to Houston, you get on 45. Follow signs for 45, you end up in Houston. That's the way that it works. I'm also a slave to Google Maps. Anybody else? Confession time. Who is a slave to Google Maps? I'm like, I I trust in the Lord, but I believe in Google Maps, right? (laughs) I believe in it. Um, (laughs) So, I, I plug it in because I can't stand traffic. Like, Five minutes of traffic makes me not a Christian for a moment, right? Like, I would rather drive 50 miles out of the way of my route to avoid two minutes of traffic. Like, it it just, it bothers me in like a core soul, bothersome way. So, I plug in Conroe, Texas. I know how to get to Conroe. I plug it in because I'm like, Google Maps is going to help me out here. And and so, I've got it. I'm watching it. We're driving through downtown. And the same thing happens that happens every time if you use Google Maps in downtown Dallas. It freaks out out. Like, it doesn't know if you're in Dallas or Timbuktu. Like, it has no idea. And it's just updating, updating, updating. And this thing's just like spinning wildly and it's like jumping into buildings. And you're like, whoa, where am I? And it tells me not to get onto 45. No, no, no. Go down some other. And all of a sudden I end up heading down 35 towards Waco. And I'm like, the whole time I know that's not where I'm supposed to be. Like, I drove past the 45 exit two miles ago, but Google Maps told me not to take it. And instead, now my trip is 15 minutes longer because I didn't just trust that I knew where I was going. I knew where I needed to go. You take 45 to get to Houston. Are there things in your life that you just know, that you know in the pit of who you are? And how often do we forget those things? When you know if you're supposed to go or you know if you're supposed to stay, but you overanalyze it, you overthink it, you turn to other things in your life, you look for the self-help book or you look for the personality on TV or you look for me, to tell you what you're supposed to do when the reality is nothing is going to tell you better about what you need to be doing in your life than an honest, authentic relationship with God that gives you that kind of a gut that lets you know this is where you need to go, this is when you need to stay. I can't tell you those kind of things. A book can't tell you those kind of things. Dr. Oz can't tell you those kind of things. The only, the the, the best thing, not the only, I won't say the only, the best thing for us to have if we want to know when we should go and when we should stay, when these sort of movements need to happen in our life, is for us to have an honest, authentic relationship with God so that we can develop that divine gut that says, you know, take 45 to Houston. Take 45 to Houston. You know how to get there. Quit plugging it into Google Maps. So I have to ask myself, you know, if I'm Paul, I'm at the crossroads between Ephesus and Jerusalem. Am I, am I going to go where the selfish part of me wants to go? Am I going to go where I'm going to be celebrated? Or am I going to go where God's calling me? Am I going to go into difficulty? Am I going to go into challenge? Am I going to go into places that are going to demand something of me? But it's the right choice. So the question for all of us, what's your Ephesus and what's your Jerusalem? What, what are those cro- crossroads you find yourself at where you go, which way am I supposed to go? And the thing is, you know. Take 45 to Houston. You know. You know. Take 45 to Houston. I think the Spirit is really good about helping us with those movement kind of questions. And, and the thing is, it's not just the big movements, right? There's big movements. Should I take that job or not? Oh, we find Jesus when we have the big movements, right? Jesus! Should I take the job? Should I take more money, Jesus? Oh, Jesus says I should take more money. Jesus said it. Should I uproot my family and my kids so I can make more money and be more successful? Whatever that means. Oh, Jesus said I should. Really? Okay. We love to turn to Jesus whenever it's those big movements. What about the little ones? How am I supposed to 
treat my spouse or my kids? How am I supposed to treat my kid when they're acting a fool? How am I supposed to treat Andy when she is like, literally, like, rational thinking is not even a part of who she is yet, right? How am I supposed to interact with my spouse when I have screwed up and I know it big time? Or when she's screwed up and she's asking forgiveness? So how am I supposed to treat the people when I find myself in traffic? How am I supposed to treat my coworkers? How am I supposed to walk daily through this life? See, God loves to be a part of the big stuff, but God really wants to be part of the little stuff. And until we make that leap from just turning to God when we have the job change or the big move or the promotion or whatever, should I get married, should I not, whatever, those things are great, those things are important, but when we make the move to asking God to be with us in the little stuff, that's when that gut starts growing. And we want a big gut. We want a big divine gut. Say with, I want a big divine gut. Say with me. I want a big divine gut. Yes. Okay. Let's keep going. That's enough gut talk. All right. Picking back up in verse 25. And now, that I, and now I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will ever see my face again. So his gut's telling me I'm at my end run. I know where this leads. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am not responsible for the blood of any of you. Wow, that's a strong statement, Paul. He doesn't, he doesn't parse words, does he? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he, ordained, that he obtained with the blood of his own son. I know that after I have gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some, even from your own group, will come distorting the truth in order to entice the disciples to follow them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years, that's interesting, how long did Jesus minister to his disciples? Oh, it's three years, that's cool, that's a cool little parallel. Bible's a crazy thing, isn't it? Therefore, be alert, remember that, that for three years I did not cease night or day to warn everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the message of his grace, a message that is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. Um, so here I think Paul is showing his, his, his leaders in Ephesus something that is incredibly true and incredibly needed, especially, I think, in the 21st century where we could use a little bit more Paul. Because I think the Holy Spirit will help us to connect our heads to our hearts. What do I mean by that? The Holy Spirit will help us to connect our heads to our hearts. So maybe this is your first time in a Methodist church, or maybe you don't know this, but our denomination was started in a way by a guy named John Wesley hundreds of years ago. He's a British guy, grew up the son of an Anglican priest. John Wesley, just like Paul, uh, died believing that he was an Anglican, just like Paul died believing he was a Jew. So John Wesley would never say that he started Methodism like as a thing. Like He didn't want to start his own denomination. He wanted to start a new movement, start bringing new life into this religion that he was raised in. So he grew up the son of an Anglican priest. He was a smart kid. He went off and he studied and he became an Anglican priest. While he was in school, this is a fun side story, um, he would wake up with his friends every morning at like four or five o'clock and they would do an hour of scripture reading and an hour of prayer. And they had this extremely regimented, regular faith that they would live out. And so they started getting called Methodists by the other kids in the school as like a bullying name. Like, oh, look at those Methodists. And he's like, I like that. 
we're going to call ourselves that. So I love that like our denomination is like turning the bully's words around. Like, okay, fine. We're a Methodist. That's great. Um, and so he, he, he learns and he studies and he becomes ordained. And he's got all this knowledge. He's a smart, smart guy, right? So he's amazing papers. And he goes to Georgia. He gets on a boat from England and goes down to Georgia because he's going to plant a church because that's what really young, smart, successful pl- pastors do. They go and they plant a church. And there's this new booming community called America. It's this new suburb in the world. And uh, like, oh, we should start churches in America. And so he goes to Georgia, and he's an utter failure. I mean, just the worst church plant you've ever seen. Bad, bad, bad church planter. And so he goes back home with his tail between his legs, and he's on this boat heading home, and he meets these people called Moravians. These Moravians were kind of like... John to a degree. You know, they, they were really smart. But one thing that he noticed about them that was crazy to him is that they didn't just like know their faith, but they believed their faith. Like there was something in them that, that he didn't have. They had this heart condition that he didn't have. And so the seed was kind of planted like, man, I don't have that. Like they've got something I don't have. So he goes back to England and he continues his relationship with these Moravians. It's this holiness movement group. And it's one night when he's in this place that he experiences for the very first time a conversion to the Christian faith. Now he knew the Christian faith, but he had never actually been converted to the Christian faith. And he described it as having his heart strangely warmed, right? Like gas station food. His heart was strangely warmed. That's the way he described it. And, and from that moment, all of a sudden, his head connected to his heart. And when that happened, everything changed. He started preaching like his hair was on fire. He would go out into fields and preach to coal miners on their way to and from work. He actually, he, 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 you know, he was kind of a rebel. He didn't like preaching inside the church because he thought too many people were stuck inside the church and they weren't outside in their communities enough. Does that sound familiar in the 21st century? Right? And so he would go outside. In fact, the, there was a local church that was really, that he butted heads with. And so he stood on his father's grave, on his like tomb, and he preached on top of his father's tomb. Like this guy was nuts, but people listened. Because they said, well, he's got something I don't got. Like, there was a lot of people that understood Christianity, like, in their head, but they weren't feeling it. And so all of a sudden, Methodism takes off. It takes off like wildfire in in England, and then it takes off like wildfire in America. And he starts ordaining people, and he names himself a bishop. You know, he says he died an Anglican. I don't know how he thought that. And you make yourself a bishop. Like, I can't do that. I'm like, well, now I'm Bishop Scott. Nice to meet you. Um, So it takes off like crazy. Now, here's the really cool thing, is that when it first started growing, People didn't like Methodists. Well, not all people. Uh, Big old stone stuffy churches didn't like Methodists. Big old stone stuffy churches that maybe kind of looked like this one back in the day. Because you know what they said? They said, they're too emotional. They're too, they don't know what they believe. They're just, it's all emotion and passion. You know, there's people that are wriggling around the ground and they're, and they're speaking in crazy tongues and, and it's all just fiery passion and it, this is not real Christianity. Does that sound familiar to you? Like Methodists were the first Pentecostals. Like we had it first and we lost it somehow. I don't know. We started wearing too many ties or something. I don't know. But the Methodist church, you go back and you look at like 17th, 18th century accounts like It it sounds like the most out there Pentecostal church you've ever walked into, and that's our history. That's where we came out. How do we get from this to this? I'll tell you. I think to a certain degree, we've tried to sever that that head to that heart connection. 
I think there's a lot. It's not just Methodist. I think there's a lot of Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Anglican, you name it. I think there's a lot of churches where we've decided, you know what? Like, this kind of makes me feel funny, so I'm just going to stay up here. And in my own life, I was comfortable up here for a long time. I've talked about this before. I was very comfortable keeping all my faith up in my head. Because if I just think about it enough, then I'll figure it out. It's easy. It doesn't have to affect me. Well, guess what? Jesus did not come to give us a cool philosophy to think about. Hey, y'all, think about this. Isn't that cool? No, that's not what Jesus did. Will Willimon writes a commentary on this section, and I love it. He said, Jesus didn't come to give us something to think about. He, he came to bring us a faith to live. Like This is not some, some cool philosophy to have up in our heads. This is about a life change. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's about getting what you know and getting it down here in your heart. Pentecost as a holiday. It's like the celebration, the special day. It's interesting because it was the celebration of God giving us the law, which was good. The law is good. It's meant to be good. And it got distorted, though, because all of a sudden people started thinking about it way too much. And we took 10 rules and turned them into like 600-something rules. And then we started talking about, well, which ones mean this? And we parceled the rules. And we, man, we, why do churches love rules so much? We love rules. It's worse than monopoly. There's so many rules. And they say, well, let's just think about the rules more and more and more until finally Jesus says, wait, 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 you guys are missing the point. The law is not about a list of rules. The law is about bringing you into relationship with God. So tell you what, let's get rid of the, let's get rid of the, the stone tablet laws and let me be the fulfillment of the law and let's have Pentecost be about the spirit coming into your heart where you can actually have a relationship with Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, the whole thing. You can have access to that. Wouldn't that be amazing? And we think that sounds cool, and we say amen. We walk out of church feeling real good, and then as soon as we walk out the doors, we take that heart-head connection, we just sort of snip it, and we take it back up here. I do this all the time. Because as long as I'm thinking about it, I don't have to do it. That's not the faith that we have. That's not a faith that we're ever going to be satisfied with. You can think about your faith all day long, 24-7, until you die, and you're going to die unsatisfied. Because the Christian faith ultimately was not meant to be a philosophy to be thought about. It was meant to be a life to be lived, a faith to be lived. The Holy Spirit helps to connect our heads to our hearts. When that happens, everything can change. Everything can change. This church changed. (laughs) History changes when we connect our heads to our hearts. All right, last section. I got worked up there. That was fun. All right, let's keep going. (laughs) Who knows where we're going to land? Okay, last verses in verses 33 through 35. Paul says this, I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothing. You know for yourselves that I worked with my own hands to support myself and my companions. He made tents in one place. It's kind of cool. In all this, I have given you an example that by such work, we must support the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus. For he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. There's one other thing the Holy Spirit teaches me that I know is true because of what Paul says here, and it's true because I've seen it in my life, and it's true because I've seen it in the lives of others, is that when I empty myself more and more, I become more of like who I want to be because what I want to be is I want to be more like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit allows me to empty myself because I think the God's honest truth is a lot of us are holding on to a lot. And when we do that, we're going to get trapped. And if you don't believe me, I want to introduce you to a baboon. I meant, I I didn't misspeak. I want to introduce you to a baboon. Um, We're getting weird right now. So there's a video I want to show you about how these tribesmen in Africa find water 
in uh, places where there aren't water, and it involves baboons, and let's watch. This is real. This is real. The baboon doesn't trust that human being at all, so he plays it cool. <laughs> but he's dying to know what gives in that confounded hole. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Mr. Inquisitive can't take it any longer. He's got to know what's in there. He reaches in, grabs a fistful, and now his hand's too big to come out. So he brings in bad cop. No, um... So did y'all, did y'all see what was happening? There? Like, this is, this is wild. So the baboon sticks his hand in, and he grabs the seeds, and as soon as he does, it, his hand is now bigger, and so he can't pull it out. And if he just had the sense to let go, he'd get on with his life. He could go on living a happy little baboon life, right? Instead, he's going to get stuck, and he's trapped. And, the, and so the tribesman, he, he, grabs, he puts a little leash on him. He keeps him there. He feeds him salt. And then when he gets really thirsty, he lets him go, and he runs off to the water. That's how they find where the water is, right? But the image to me of this baboon's hand stuck in a termite heap or an ant heap, whatever that was, and if he just had the sense to let go, he could get on with his life, but instead he's just stuck. Have you ever been stuck? Have you ever had a handful of something that you knew, if I just let go of this, I could, I could move on to the life that I really want to be living, but I'm just, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. And so we get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier because we're just so stubborn, there's things in my life that I've not wanted to let go of. Sometimes it's stuff, right? Like, there's stuff that I love. I love my grill and my Xbox and my house and my car and my new gas range. And I, I love food and I love money. I love, you know, I like shoes. I like clothes. I don't know. I like stuff. A lot of us like stuff. We just moved, and Reagan's like, we can get rid of this, some of this stuff. I'm like, oh, sweet, finally. I mean, because if we get so cluttered with stuff. And the thing is, we, we weren't called to live a life with our hands tightly clasped on all these things that we think we need. That's not, that's not the way that we were meant to move through this life, because when we do that, it, it makes us selfish, and it makes us think like in scarcity terms, and like, well, if I let it go, then it might never come back. You're right, it might, and you might be okay. You might, might actually be better for it. We were meant to walk through life with, with open hands where we were willing to offer to other people the things that we have or we were w- w- willing and ready to receive from God the things that we need to receive. 
And if our hands are stuck and they're, and they're clasped and they're shut, then how, how's God going to hand us anything? I can't receive a mission or a ministry if my hands are like this. I've got nothing to hold it with. I've got to let some stuff go. So maybe stuff for you is, is time. Maybe stuff for you is money. Maybe stuff for you is this vision of success that you think you, you have to have. I don't, know what your, I don't know what your melon seeds are, but I know that everybody in this room, we've all got our hand, and it's holding on to something, and we're all stuck. And I, So my question is, what, what, what are you stuck holding? Just, just think of one thing. Don't, don't try to make a mountain out of this quite yet. You know, faith is lived one day at a time. What, what's one thing? that you're stuck holding on to right now. And if you just let go, oh my gosh, imagine where you could go. Imagine what God could call you to. It's fitting that we have communion today. Uh, when I was in kids' ministry, we did a, a series on communion to teach the kids about what it is. Because, you know, if you're a kid, this whole thing about, like, Jesus' body and blood sounds a little creepy, right? Um, you know, <laughs> early church, they got, they, got, they got criticized by other faiths because they thought they were vampires. Like, no joke, they thought they were vampires. You're like, they drink some guy's blood, it's weird, you know. Um, so when we're teaching the kids about communion, what, is, what are we talking about when we say body and blood? The one thing that we teach them about is it's this, communion is this beautiful, tangible act where we receive God's grace. And the way we receive God's grace is through these gifts of, 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 of bread and juice, which represent, no kids, it's not real, they represent body and blood. But if we're going to come down an aisle and we're going to receive God's grace, you know, it's funny, as, as kids do the same thing, a lot of adults do this too, and, and, and that's okay. Um, but, but we taught them a different way. They, they would, you know, try to reach out and grab the bread, right? Because that's just natural. Someone's, you know, got something that you want, you want to reach out and take it. And so we would teach them, Instead of reaching out and grabbing the bread, what if we held our hands like this? And what if we walked down the, the row and we simply allowed the person to hand us the bread so that we could receive it? And, and, and when we taught them that, we taught them that, you know, God gives us love and it's nothing we do that, that puts it in our hands. We simply receive it. We simply hold our hands open, ready to receive this grace and this love that God offers us. You know, when, when Paul says it's better to give than to receive I mean, I think he's right in the most, like, uh, like interpersonal way of that truth, right? It's, it's much better to give things away to others than to have everybody shower you with gifts, right? That's, like, that's a virtue. We all agree that that's true. But, you know, giving and receiving with the Spirit is interesting. Because the first thing we can do before we have anything to give, before we have anything to give, we better get ready to receive. Until I've received the Holy Spirit, until I've received that grace of God, then I, I really don't have anything to give. That's why when, when we talk about baptism in the church or, or when we talk about communion, we, we talk about it's God who first loves us, not the other way around. Before we have any worship to give, before we have any gifts to give, before we have any talents to give, or before we even have good news to give, we've got to get in the humble position and ready to receive. And that's hard to do. That is hard to do because we think this looks like weakness. If I walked through my life literally holding my hands like this, that you would think that I was a beggar. And we say, oh, that's, that's weakness. No, it's not. In the Christian faith, this is humility. And there's power in this because we realize that it's not us doing it. God's putting the grace in our hands, and then we're going and we're sharing it with someone else. It's not about me. That's why Paul can stand there in confidence and say, my life is not my own. It's about the ministry that I've been given 
from God. So when we do communion later, it's going to be like a pop quiz. We're going to see who walks down the aisles with their hands like this, right? Um, you all be looking, are they doing it? Uh, oh, shoot, I got to do it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but I think it's a good practice. I think it's a beautiful thing for us to come through once a month and remind ourselves, it's not me, it's God. It's not me, it's God. I'm just here to receive. And then I'm here to give as soon as I receive. And then once I give, then I'm ready to receive again. Then I can give again. And what if, I mean, God, can you imagine if this just became our natural mode of giving and receiving love and grace to every person around? My goodness, we need more of that. Amen? Are you living in the same world that I am? We need more of this. Maybe it starts with communion. So the Holy Spirit teaches me a lot, and Paul teaches me a lot. But I'm so thankful that I get to come back to this table time and time again because it confirms these things that I know. The Holy Spirit is going to teach me how to give and to receive the best possible way. The Holy Spirit is going to connect my head to my heart, and the Holy Spirit's going to tell me when to go and when to stay. And if I eat enough bread and juice, I'll get that divine gut along the way. Let's pray. Holy God, we don't even need to invite your presence here this morning, God, because we know that you are here. You've been here long before we arrived. You've been here before we even knew there was a Lover's Lane church. You've been in this place since the very beginning of time. And here we are ready to receive you. So God, on this Pentecost Sunday, on this day when we celebrate, when you first gave us a relationship, not just a God to think about, but a God to live with. Help us to make our hearts and our souls a welcoming, hospitable place for you again. Some of us are entirely too comfortable thinking about you, but we fail to live for you on a daily basis. Some of us have grown comfortable being where we want to be. And we haven't stopped to consider where it is that you want us to be. We have forgotten that a call to faith frequently is a call to a difficult life. Lastly, God, some of us are simply stuck. We've got our hands tightly clasped to things that we don't really need. And so we've not made ourselves open to you. Help us to loosen our grip. Free us so that we can live the life that we want to live, that we know you have called us to live. And we trust that as we fail in all of these endeavors all along the way, that your grace will cover us. a grace born out of your Son, the same one whose name we pray in, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and we say, amen.